You're listening to the Bon Appetit Foodcast. I'm Adam Rappaport. The holidays are upon us, which means it's time for cocktail parties and dinner parties and all sorts of good entertaining. I sit down with Bon Appetit associate editor Emil Stonic and his girlfriend, chef Lauren Schaefer, who together have this groovy catering company called Mouth to Mouth. They do all sorts of parties. And I talk to them about how to entertain with style and ease. And is that even possible? And then deputy editor Andrew Knowlton talks to Brad Thomas Parsons, cookbook author and cocktail nerd extraordinaire, uh, who just came out with Amaro, The Spirited World of Bittersweet Herbal Liqueurs. A book all about that mysterious-seeming drink that's making its way from Italy to the States and deserves your exploration because, like, it's good for you, right? But before we get to all that, do you want to give the gift of Bon Appetit? Because you can give the gift of Bon Appetit. You can get a one-year subscription plus an exclusively designed Headley and Bennett apron. Plus, 10% of each order will go to fund a charity water project helping to bring clean water to developing countries. Normally $85, we are offering 20% off plus free shipping for 68 bucks. That's a bargain. So go to bonapetit.com slash gift and use the code. Ready? This is the code. F as in Frank, S as in Sam, two, zero, off, O-F-F. Once again, F, S, two, zero, O-F-F. Let's do this thing. Here's Emil and Lauren. Okay, guys, so there is nothing that makes me happier than hosting a dinner party, and yet there is nothing that makes me more stressed than hosting a dinner party. More stressed? Really? You keep, you keep it together pretty well. Mm, if, if things go off well, but there's so many moving parts to a dinner party beyond just what you're cooking, correct? Sure. Yeah. Well, I mean, I feel like that to, to speak to that stress, it's like the dinner party only goes as well like you were only as relaxed as you are when the first guest walks in, you know? No, like, wait, wait, meaning what? Meaning like if you are like scrambling last minute to like, you know, pre- like prep ingredients for later or you're putting beverages on ice or whatever, like what or tidying up, like while people, people are walking through the door, you're already like behind. Mm-hmm. And that I feel like sets you back because, That's what you're saying. because you're trying to be, you know, a gracious host and you got to make sure people get drinks and, you know, they're there to see you. So to me, the most important thing is just budgeting yourself way too much time. Mm-hmm. And so you so, should budget too much time. You should budget it, too much time so that when people show up, you're like, you're chill, you're, you're chill, you're showered, you're looking good. You have your party outfit on, Ooh. you have your glasses all lined up, ready to Pop that first bottle. Okay, I yeah. like that. All right, all right. So I'm in the mood now. Okay, all right, so run, hosting a dinner party, there's a lot of logistics, but can we agree that it starts with the food? You still got to decide like, what are we cooking, right, Lauren? I definitely think it starts with the food. I think it's about getting excited about something you want to eat and something that you want to share with your friends or your dinner guests. Does it need to be fancy? It needs to appear fancy. Ooh. I think. Which means what? I think for me, it means. Something that maybe people don't cook for themselves or think of as fancy, but when presented on a beautiful table, it's everyone wants to dig in. Yeah, I think that's interesting. So let's let, let's talk about it. Let's all right. So Emil, let's let's talk about like it's it's the holiday season now. Take me through what might be a, a good dinner party menu and how and why do you pull it off? Well, so to me, I mean, I think one of the really special things about cooking at home is you kind of you either need to have time or money 
but you don't need to have both necessarily. I mean, you do need some money, but you, okay. if you have a lot of time, you can, you know, put together, put something together that is really fancy feeling and ha there's a lot of like time and effort put into it, but you don't have to necessarily break the bank. So like, for example, a chunk of pork shoulder, which, you know, you can get a good sized piece of pork shoulder or like a, a chuck roast if you're going beef and normally start with a braise. You know, I feel like that's kind of like the jumping off point because you've got a big piece of meat. It's going to be like fall apart, tender and delicious after you've cooked it for many, many hours. And it's going to be just as impressive as that like $60 ribeye, but you maybe spent $12 on it. Also, one of what I love about braising, whether you're braising a pork shoulder or short ribs, um, the house smells amazing. When oh, guests yeah. walk in, you're like, oh my God, it smells so good. And then also I think what's cool to your point, I, I think when you make something that's not fancy, guests they relax. They're less intimidated. When you start put something homey down. But to your point, Lauren, it's like if you're gonna put braised pork shoulder, you want to, you want to present it in a way that feels festive and not oh, yeah. just like your mom's making, you know, pork, you know, making a, a pot roast on yeah. a Tuesday night. It's the time to break out the garnishes. I also feel like braising meat really speaks to like luxury because it's not every night that we get to go home and braise something. It has to, like Getting Emil back said, to you need time. You need time. And you don't have that during the week. We need time or money, right? If we're focusing on that, it's like time is the most beautiful thing that you can offer your guests, right? And money really can't compare. It doesn't matter if you bought lobster, the fact that you're, you spent a lot of time and then you're presenting it in a beautiful way. All right, let's talk about that. You, you guys have mentioned about sort of accoutrements and stuff and, and the notion of a, a one pot meal. So let's talk specific. Give me some, give me some examples of what a great dinner party can entail a menu. I mean, to me, like one real, I feel like go-to for us is, you know, <clears throat> Something like stewy, brazy, ragu-y, like, um, you know, pork shoulder and tomato sauce, something like that. And then you have like a big pot of polenta. And, you know, that also helps to kind of you have something like saucy and intensely seasoned, like a, you know, a pork ragu. Ladling that over some soft, you know, cheesy polenta is just like nobody hates that, you know. And then all you need after that is like a nice crunchy salad, maybe some frisee or some... You know, bitter greens. Mm, bitter greens, yep. Some escarole would be delicious with like an anchovy, garlicky dressing. And that's like, you know, you kind of have, I know Adam's like looking at me when I say anchovy, garlicky dressing. It's I, can, like, I can roll with it. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, you know, it's like there, like right there, you have like a super simple, like not too crazy menu that, you know, once that's all on the table, everybody's like, wow, this feels like I'm at a restaurant. This feels really exciting. And, you know, maybe, maybe you, like, make a little green sauce, just, like, puree some parsley and basil with some oil and put a little salt in that. And all of a sudden, you've got, like, a condiment. And, you know, it's like people love sauce. And, and you like, can also, I mean, a couple of things. You can A, you can make that sauce a day ahead. Totally. Uh, and we can talk about this, about getting started earlier than you think. Get some things out of the way. Also, what I love about doing braises, uh, whether, like I said, whether it's pork shoulder or, you know, osobuco, whatever, um, it can sit. It, you're not doing it a la minute, as the French would say. You're not making something right there in a hot pan to plate and serve your guests like you're fancy at a restaurant. It's in the back of the stove. It's just hanging out, waiting for you to, to serve it. Totally. And the thing that's great about a lot of braises like that is that you can just do it the day before. My Where I always get stuck, and mm -hmm. I, what you guys are really good at with your catering company. You call it a catering <laughs> company? What do we call it? We call it mouth-to-mouth. Mouth-to-mouth. That's uh, what we've decided upon. Meal, ser meal party, party service. I don't know what we you want like to call it. We feel like that's all-inclusive. Yeah. Um, you guys do like cocktail hors d'oeuvre hour really well, and I never know what to serve because I'm always thinking about 
the braise and like the pureed potatoes or the polenta and making the salsa verde. And then I'm like, oh yeah, I need to serve something when guests walk in the door and I start to panic and freak out. Yeah. And, I, and, and talk about some of your techniques, like what works well at that sort of cocktail hour. I think one thing that works really well, which I've only recently discovered, is putting a delicious snack at the bar where people are serving themselves to mm. get drinks when they walk in. Even if you're helping the first few guests pour champagne, before you know it, everyone, I think, is into making themselves a drink and bonding over that. Um, I love putting snacks at that okay, area. Okay, like snacks meaning what? I think Give me snacks, some details. I think a snack can be as simple as olives with a dish for pits or toothpicks. Okay. I also think like marinated feta is lovely and people something that people can easily pop in their mouths and it's identifiable and they don't need an explanation. And marinated feta being feta with olive oil and herbs and olive stuff? Olive oil, herbs. Um, I think something obviously so they can just pop it in their mouth and get rid of that. They're, not wa they're walking around with just their drink from that point on, but they're already eating. They're already feeling like it's a party and they're when it's right by the drink while they're waiting for their friend to pour themselves something, they can put something in their mouth. All right, so you get your little bar snacks, but then you also do really well what my wife likes to refer to as hipster crudite. <laughs> uh, talk to me about that, Emil, and that includes beautiful-looking vegetables with a cool dip. Uh, talk to me about both. Well, you know, I mean, I think to me the best, you know, this is – there's a little bit of controversy here within Lauren and my relationship. She's over crudite. Let, what? Let, let the so dime, stand. Do not tell my wife that. She's going to be just crushed. Hey, you know, the customer's always right. Yeah, exactly. Um, but, you know, to me, I don't want I don't want people to fill up, you know, but I still want them to exactly. have. Exactly. I'm always worried that they're going to be so filled up and they're not going to want to eat the polenta and the pork. Right. Which, you know, at the end of the day, never has anybody sat down at the table and been like, oh, but no, I just No, they have. They oh fill up on God. bread. Don't fill up on the bread. That's well, like I literally have like a, a library stamp that says that because people make that mistake. <laughs> they, go to the, they go to like Peter Luger's and they fill up on the onion rolls. I'm like, dude, what are you doing? You're about to just spend $90 on steak and you're eating 28 cents onion rolls mm, with the onion too rolls much are butter. Good there, though. I know, but you have like half a one. But yeah, I mean, so to your point, I think that, you know, you want food that is feels substantial, but is also light and fresh. And okay, so talk to, all right, so, so crudite, right, get right, to the right, point, right, yes. Calm down, calm down. So, you know, it's like, no matter what time of year it is, you can go to the farmer's market, you can get some, you know, vegetables that first and foremost look beautiful. Yes. You know, so you've got your, you know, beautiful cauliflower, maybe some like Romanesco, the beautiful green, it kind of looks like a cross between cauliflower and it's like It's broccoli. like if, it's like if, if Godzilla ate broccoli. It's got little like sort of cool like Horns, green horns, totally, come totally. Out. Yeah, radishes are always great. All different you know, shapes, all and different colors. shapes and colors. You know, you just want, especially during the winter time, you want to take some of those root vegetables and just shave them really thin, um, and then have you know. So I like to really like to do a, like a ranchy sort of homemade yogurt, buttermilk, mayo sauce with lots of herbs and garlic. You also, I like what you do. Sometimes you also you're a proponent of in terms of filling up a little bit, um, sort of a poaching or just boiling whatever uh little baby potatoes and then chilling mm. those and putting those out also oh my god yeah cold boiled fingerling potatoes as long as you season that cooking water really mm. well so they're like nice and seasoned it's i mean i'm not gonna say it's better than a french fry Ooh, but no, like no. do dipped, not say that dipped in ranch <laughs> yeah. it's really good um all right so a homemade ranch you're doing yogurt Yogurt, so basically kind of equal parts yogurt or sour cream, mm -hmm. depending on like what the crowd's like, um, and mayonnaise. And then you want to thin that with buttermilk. And okay. so once it gets to kind of like a dressing-like consistency, then you just microplane a couple of cloves of garlic in, 
season it with plenty of salt and then whatever herbs you have lying around, you know, yeah. like it's I love doing a combination of like kind of herbs that people won't pick out necessarily. So it's like, you know, you could do dill and cilantro and basil and parsley and people are just like, oh, it just tastes when you clean. anytime I notice when you guys do a gig, you show up with like Ziploc bags full of fresh cleaned herbs and whether you're mixing them in a dressing or then putting them on top of a braised meat to awake, awaken that or just like Well, it really herbs. gives you flexibility. Yeah. When you have those herbs all picked ahead of time, it really gives you the flexibility to then kind of make that last minute decision and decide where it really belongs, where it, I feel like I treat the vegetable like where does it want to go? Mm-hmm. Who wants to eat it? And then getting that food to the person. But herbs are so interesting. I think what's great about fresh herbs is that they sort of it's like an alarm goes off and they wake up a dish. Like yes. you might have prepared that dish a day ahead, like we talked about. You throw some fresh herbs on there, and all of a sudden it's like, it's like, ooh, I'm awake. And it's beautiful. You right? do, yeah. You speaking of beautiful, you also do a dip. This crazy, what is that beet dip you do? Like a beet tahini or something? It's like this bright fuchsia color. Yeah, it's insane. Basically, anything that you puree a beet into is going to be beautiful. Whether it's yogurt, I feel mm. like beet hummus is really popular right now. And um, so you, so you, with tahini. you roast the beet, and the, what do you do with the beet? Really, you can do whatever you want. If you want that beet to be a little bit sweeter, roasting it and then peeling off that skin. Mm-hmm. Um, I love to steam roast. Which okay, is but you still I, have to cook the beet. You can't just puree a raw beet, right? You know, you could grade the beet, and if you throw that in a high-powered blender, and, and you, that's it. And if you have like that as one dip and Emil's homemade ranch dressing as another and some beautiful vegetables, I mean, that's kind of good. Like, get get back with the crudite. Come on, Lauren. I I, you know, I'm just interested in exploring new ways of serving crudite. I think that's really my thing. Um, lately, I've been into really saving all, especially if you're making the effort to go to the farmer's market and buying those extra special, beautiful vegetables yeah. that you can't even really find at your local supermarket. Um I think saving all of, they're always like, do you want the tops or not? Save the tops. Those yeah. are the most beautiful thing to put your crudite on top of. Ooh, yeah, you're really good at presentation. Like you said, you eat with your eyes first, and and we're not talking about just going to get those little carrot nubs and celery sticks. No. Um, buy some interesting vegetables. Make a cool homemade dip. I did cook dinner recently. Uh, a friend was coming over. It wasn't really a dinner party. Um, but I made spaghetti and meatballs mm-hmm. and made good meatballs, the recipe from the meatball shop here in New York. We put ricotta in the, in the meat mixture, um, made a good basic tomato sauce, tossed them in there, and put bought out this big platter of the pasta with the meatballs and sauce together. Mm. And we made homemade garlic bread, which is not that hard to do. You cut some bread in half and you put some shaved yeah, garlic and, and herbs and butter on there and you wrap it up in tin foil, put it in the oven. Mm. Um, and it was just so good in a nice yeah. bright green salad. And like if you serve that for six, eight people, no one will complain. No. Everyone, everyone will go home happy. This notion that people think I think the biggest mistake, if I may, that home hosts make is that they think they need to cook restaurant type food. Oh yeah. And it just they have to plate it and make it look fancy. Like people don't come to your house for fancy food. People come to your house for home cooked food and to hang out with you. Yeah. To enjoy your company, hopefully, right? Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, in the words of Julia Kramer, my, my colleague Julia Kramer's husband, Zach Kaplan, Julia, they're getting a free meal. <laughs> like it's kind of like you can't stress out too much. So let, let, let's go through. So we have some some beautiful crudite, a couple of dips. We've got a couple of bar snacks, whether it's feta or maybe some Marcana almonds mm. or olives on the bar. You have a couple of bottles of Prosecco or champagne. People are pouring themselves a drink. They're happy. But rewind to get to that point, Lauren, yeah. if I may, and I don't want to throw a meal under the bus here. Being neat and tidy, maybe not Emil's strong suit. 
But wow. when you cook, it's like there's it's like there's no one even there. Like you never see a spot of anything. Can you talk about cleaning as you cook so that when the first guest does come over, it doesn't look like a tornado just hit the kitchen? Ah, sauvage. I really do feel like it comes with practice. Um, but I also think that if you make an effort to clean as you cook, everything will make so much more sense. Like and talk you, about what does yeah. that mean, clean as you cook? Like what do you specifically do? Basically, anytime I open or empty any jar or any container, I immediately try to get it out of my vision, whether that means putting it in the recycling or throwing that in the dishwasher. But keeping that space clean will just save you so much stress, even if that stress is all in your mind. Yeah, your workspace. I've seen your workspace, and it looks like you work at the Apple store. It's just like <laughs> clean and white, and there's like two things. And I'm oh like, oh my gosh, I'm so and I'm like, you, right How now. did you just make all this food? But yeah, and it's just like, it's wiping it down. It's putting stuff in recycling. It's throwing the, the carrot ends in the dis- disposal or whatever. Or deciding you want to yeah. save or, them. Or use those carrot ends. Yeah. And also, when you have too many things going on in front of you, and there's just too many things hanging out, you you forget to put an ingredient in because it's behind that that container and you're like, oh my God, I forgot to put the pepper in or whatever. But one thing I find, there are so many other things that go into a dinner party that have nothing to do with the food. And especially if you're having a dinner party with 10 or 12 people, I mean, it's kind of like throwing a pop-up restaurant in your house. Like, oh, do you have votive candles? What about flowers? Did you go to the store to buy ice? Like, do you even have enough knives and forks or plates to serve that many people? What about chairs? Like, there's yeah. a lot that a lot of questions you need to ask yourself before you even begin cooking. Definitely. I think there's definitely a checklist that you kind of need to go down in your mind and that it's all going to make it so much easier. One thing that I really like to do is kind of counting those plates out and just setting them aside ahead and even thinking about dessert. Yeah. So counting out those dessert spoons or dessert forks, glassware ahead of time and having that in a nice, yeah. are you doing? Are you serving area? the dessert on a dessert plate or in a bowl or in yeah. a little glass yeah. or whatever? Like, well, yeah. How, how, you but having those yourself. spoons sitting out. Do you do, are you a fan of the to-do list? you literally take a piece of paper and write stuff out. I am a f- not a fan of the to-do list. When you know it who comes- is? This guy right here. Yeah. Yeah. I, like, I think it's nice because it's when you write it and you tape it. That was one of those things where you ask someone a question because basically you just want to give them the answer. Yeah. <laughs> um, but like literally I, I will write that. it and like tape it to the wall. And be able, do you do that? I know Christine Mulkey I do that. does it a lot. I really like doing colleague. that. I really like, um, you know, when if we're doing like a catering gig mm-hmm. – We'll make like three or four of those lists, you know, just like Friday night, you know, it's like the events on Sunday, like Friday night, here's what we're prepping, here are all the dishes and all the things that we can do. The next day, you like still have a few things circled, you make a new list with like the all the new things. And that way, I mean, I think that helps to keep things for me really organized and to feel like accomplished. Yeah, you know, there's nothing better than taking that Sharpie and crossing something off. You're like, ooh. But I do think it's really important and something that I'm only now just learning to do is it's not enough to make your prep list like just buy individual dishes. You need a a separate column that's just like all of the non-food things. So, yeah, that is like counting out your plates. That is like seeing if you have enough dessert plates or maybe you're like, you know what, this is going to I'm going to make a dessert that's going to go in a bowl because I don't have enough dessert. plates. It's like you're in high school and you're making your outline with one and one A and one B and everything. Yeah, totally. That sort of stuff. Um, Let's talk dessert because that that is the sort of the analog to my hors d'oeuvre anxiety. Then I'm like, oh, shoot, I got to think of dessert also. And am I baking that ahead of time or like. You know, talk to me about some dessert strategy. You were we at a, I was at a party recently, you guys, and you did the cool little like chocolate. 
puddings in glass? Yeah. What, what was that exactly? The easiest chocolate cake that just puffs up and everyone's like, wow, it's, it's a souffle. But it really is just chocolate, some whiskey, coffee, sugar, eggs. Um, you and can, you made the batter ahead of time? You or can you make do? the batter ahead of time, whisk it all together. You can store it for probably up to a week in the refrigerator, wow, Okay, I would say. And then after um, dinner, you put the oven on and what you do? After dinner, or you can leave that oven on mm-hmm. if you already Ooh, had okay. it. If you yeah. already had it going for your braise yeah. or whatever was in your oven, um, pour that batter into cups, stick the whole tray of whatever that may be. And I think everyone- So put all the cups on like a sheet tray. Put all the cups on a sheet tray. It could also be coffee mugs. Mm-hmm. I feel like everyone has coffee yeah. mugs. Um, put that in the oven. It comes out hot. Serve it with cream. Very Favorite. important. Mm. <laughs> Smells like chocolate in your whole home. Yeah. Well, everyone, yeah. A hot dessert people go bonkers for. Yeah, it I feels think so. super fancy. And I think part of the thing also that's so nice about that is like once, you know, like people are, have eaten, you know, that the, there's kind of the whole scene at the table. Everyone's like a little drunk, you know, they're just kind of talking and people aren't thinking about what you're doing. So then you get to kind of sneak in the kitchen. Yeah. Also kind of take a moment to like, take, yeah, okay, take a breath, did. high five each other. And then everything's just, you know. The batter is made, goes in, goes, you know, and then when you bring that to the table, people freak yeah. out. So that's a neat thing to do. You do the work ahead of time and yeah. then just let the oven finish it off. Mm-hmm. Well, and something that, Lauren, you do a lot that I really like is, you know, you'll have the kind of dessert that you're, that is ready to be made and come out, will come out hot. Then you also will put some fr- fruit, whether it's fresh or dried or like a few nuts or something on the table. Some sort of seasonal fruit, some Concord grapes or, or the little, uh, Tangerine. What are the little guys called at that, that Christmas Clementines? time? Clementines. Clementines. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Everyone loves a clementine. Everyone loves a clementine. So easy to peel. Easiest so easy thing to eat. eat. No Fragrance. sticky fingers. Exactly. Yeah. So yeah, clementines, little chocolate pudding souffles thing. That's perfect. Before we go, guys, any parting words, any advice for throwing a stress-free and successful dinner party? Mm. Don't run out of wine. Yes. Because <laughs> you know what? It's not going to go bad. If you don't open no. it, you'll, you can drink it tomorrow. Yeah, don't celebrate your accomplishments. Don't run out of paper towels. <laughs> yes, a lot of paper towels. All right, guys, thank you so much. Lauren and Emil. Thank you. Thanks, Adam. All right, that was Emil and Lauren. And now here is Deputy Editor Andrew Knowlton with Cocktail Authority and author Brad Thomas Parsons. Brad Thomas Parsons, welcome to the BA Foodcast. Great to be here. Good to see you, Andrew. You're this interesting cat because you you have a day job. What's your day job? I do. Uh, my day job, I'm the executive director of culinary marketing at a pub- publisher called Houghton Mifflin Harcourt here, here in New York. So I uh, work with a lot of authors like Dory Greenspan and Jacques Pepin and Mike Salomonoff and big brands like Betty Crocker and Weight Watchers and... Uh, but I'm published by a different publisher, Ten right. Speed Press. Well, that's so you're you're keeping your day job. <laughs> yes, but your your other job is much more cool. You, um, I think, kind of like me, started as a barfly almost, right? You you started as a barfly going, and and then you got mm-hmm. into cocktails hardcore, and then four years ago, or not even that long, you came out five years ago. You came out with a seminal book that is. Every bar I go to, not only in New York, not only in the United States, but around the world, it's like required reading for bartenders, and it's called Bitters. Yes, yeah. So I, I've been really fortunate that that book is has really become a well stamped passport of a book where 
at least once a week, I get a text from someone or a photo. They're in Tokyo or Helsinki, and there it is behind the bar. And yeah. that, that means so much to me because I never would want to write a disposable book where you just read it and throw it away. And right. that people turn to it on a regular basis and mark it up and post filled with post-it notes really means so much. And, and I've gotten a couple pictures from Amaro so far. Amaro definitely made it to right. Italy. And um, I just got a picture from Cartagena, like a popular bar in Cartagena and a uh, Kalulampur. So, so that to to say that your your new book, which just came out in October, October eleventh, yeah, is Amaro. So you you like the kind of obscure, <laughs> single topic, nerdy kind of bar books, but but yeah. there's obviously an audience, and we can talk a little bit about this cocktail revolution, mm-hmm. which is I think given giving you your audience in, in a lot of ways. So my first question in terms of Amaro is. What the hell is Amaro? Because even somebody like myself who's been in it, I'm confused about when is a vermouth and Amaro? Does Amaro have to be drunk after? So what what Mm -hmm. is your, I'm a dumb guy, what's Amaro? Well, that was the biggest, so the basic, Amaro means bitter in Italian. That's the easiest thing to say. But it also represents this class of after-dinner digestifs that are primarily Italian in origin that are bittersweet and herbal. Okay. So those are some and key factors in it. So that's why things like chartreuse technically mm-hmm. isn't an amaro. It's an herbal liqueur. Mm-hmm. Um, vermouths typically are wine-based versus spirit-based, although there are many wine-based amaro. <laughs> um, and also wormwood uh, is a defining bittering agent in vermouth, and, and there's regulations about what how much is in it to be called a vermouth. The wild thing about Amaro and the frustrating and also exhilarating thing is this lack of definition, classification. Uh, so you think of like whiskey or, or mezcal, tequila, beer, wine, all these sort of rules mm-hmm. where this is a porter, this is an IPA. Amaro, every bottle you're dealing with, for the most part, proprietary recipes have been passed down for generations uh, secret production. Centuries. Me- I mean, in yeah. the case of Italy, the centuries, yeah, right? Yeah, I mean, So most yeah. of the people I, I spoke with were fourth, fifth, sixth generation, but uh-huh. they, yeah, the commercial Amaro date back like 1815 and in and, and, and much earlier kind of uh, homegrown versions. So for the sake of, but then you think of like uh, one of our favorites, Underberg from Germany, that's an herbal digestif that's bitter. Uh Jägermeister, sort of a spicy schnapps, but falls in that category. So Germany has a tradition. So for, is Jägermeister an Amaro? I call it an Amaro. They technically it so is. So in college, I was drinking Amaro. Yeah, that was the, nice. We all were drinking Amaro <laughs> and probably didn't realize it because I always think like, oh, Fernet Branca was my first Amaro, but I'm like, no, it was. You it, was know, it was Jägerbombs. It was Jägerbombs. <laughs> it it uh, Suni Oswego. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, I think it is. It is again. It's it's very. It's a loosely defined category. So I, for the sake of the book and this project, I wrestled with it a lot, but I opened this kind of big umbrella where if it's intentionally bitter, sweet, and herbal mm-hmm. and intended as a digestif, it was fair game. It's so tomorrow. I, yeah. Okay. And, and, but going back to Italy now, so Italy, as you know, um, very regionally driven uh, and protective of things like their cheese and their prosciutto, yes. or the DOC. Uh, so many Italians I interviewed for the book were like, it must be made in Italy to be called Amaro. And they, they were adamant about that. But then you look, there's there's Amaro now made in Charleston, in Brooklyn, right. um, Mexico, Trinidad. So the genie's out of the bottle on that front. But the other big thing that they really were adamant about was 
it amaro is more than the drink. It's the act of when you drink it at the end of a meal. It's a okay. digestif. But if we will get into it talking about why it's blown up in the last few years is American bartenders sort of taking these dusty bottles and putting them into cocktails is a key ingredient in cocktails. So, so can I? So let's like thirty years ago when when maybe there was a few like you said dusty bottles at some old Italian American restaurant. Yeah. Was, was that like just six years ago? Six years ago <laughs> yeah, was that yeah. was that simply uh, Italian Italian American people bringing them over and having them after dinner? I I think that's the case because if you think about it, a digestif really could it could be a glass of whiskey, right? It, it, it could be sambuca, limoncello, grappa. Um, but I think seeing yeah the Italian American tradition of people you know opening a restaurant, but a lot of times like. In like going out to eat in high school, well, college more, you go to Italian restaurant. It was always like Sambuca came out or something. So, I, you know, so I saw those bottles there, and you see them. And in in Italy, that was definitely the case. Like every cafe we went to, they'd put a bottle on the table at the end with your espresso. And yeah, that's when I've seen it is well dressed men, yeah, usually men, (laughs) uh, having an espresso and then having some sort of dark kind of brownish liquid that they were. I remember going to Florence in college and Mm -hmm. and seeing this and then having some of it and being like, oh, hell no, I can't. I couldn't handle it. (laughs) I I, I discovered Campari because that was like a lighter bitter and you mixed it with a little soda water. Mm -hmm. Campari... Which has gone, you know, famously through the Negroni. Yeah, that is that is not an Amaro. That was another like three months of, of struggling <laughs> okay. because I knew I couldn't have a book called Amaro without having the Negroni in there right. and Campari right. because it's it's, it's bit, a bitter. It's bitter. Yeah. Um, th- you know that kind of tricky taxonomy of the subject where so Amaro means bitter, but Italians call Campari a bitter, but in English, B I T T E R. Right, it says it on the. Yeah, it says yeah. it's like, and so it's bitter Campari. Right. Um, so the re- so yeah, so I just I struggle that a lot. So the reality is, I would call it, I call it an aperitivo bitter. So it's a light, and and some of the key factors are typically not drunk on its own, like you said. Soda's right. added. Um, more likely to have it at the beginning of a meal in like is it is an aperitivo to spark your appetite rather than settle your appetite. Right. Usually lower proof in in alcohol, lower ABV, uh, more citrus forward, um, that red color, and then but the but the reality is a lot of those bittering agents to define what makes an amaro, gentian, cinchona, things like that. Same things are in there. It's right. just they're tweaked. And uh, so it's like uh, one one of the Morrow producers I talked to from Washington, D.C., who's a third-generation Italian from the Amalfi Coast, in his romantic way, he always says, let the color of the spirit guide when you drink it. So red is at sunset, you know, uh, the the brown or darker ones are for after. Uh, after interesting. Dinner. So let's switch gears a little bit. I, w- um, I just want to briefly hear what you think happened – in American like drinking habits that opened the door for basically the bitter cocktail era that we're in. Mm-hmm. Meaning it used to be traditionally a sweet thing. People wanted sweet cocktails yeah. and and then there was this revolt um led by uh people we know and then we got in line with them and it's switched, it seems, uh for the time being to Bitter cocktails. You know, I used to mm-hmm. ask when I would go to a bar, I would ask for a dry cocktail or something yep. that wasn't sweet. And now I hear people going to a bar saying, I want something bitter. Brown bitter and Brown stirred. bitter. <laughs> yeah, so what, 
what the hell happened? Like what, and, and open the door for somebody like yourself mm-hmm. to write an Amaro book. And then, you know, you've got three bottles in front of you, one from New York, and I've never seen these. Like, so what happened? You know, Americans tend, a bitter is a flavor we hadn't really adopted right. for it was, years. It was too European for yeah, us. Right? Yeah. yeah, so you think of like, I think of like the Italian children eating anisette candy. Yeah, and, licorice. You know, licorice. And, yeah. and, and for us, um, you know, obviously the the bitterness in food has been more accepted like kale and, co- and coffee culture right so Good chocolate chocolate yeah. so but i really think the negroni was a cornerstone in in of a cocktail to turn people to it so my personal narrative with it i thinking back you know like um fernet branca was really my first kind of this was like when i was living in seattle and the that's when i was having your the bartender's handshake where you get a shot of it when you walk in or when you leave for the night um, so that was sort of my first experience. Wait, what is Fernet Branca for people who don't oh, know? Oh, so that's another whole while. <laughs> Some people, <laughs> Fernet Branca, Fernet is a subcategory of Amaro. Um, typically, there's a, about a half dozen common ingredients like saffron and uh, uh, aloferox and, and rhubarb root. And it's this bracingly bitter, very medicinal Kind of tastes like toothpaste and a candy cane. And, hot. It, and it became the thing on the West Coast as like yes. a bartender now, shift drink, yes. right? So going back to the Italian-American yeah. immigrants in San Francisco, brought it with them, carried the shop at their shops and stores and restaurants, and it became like the bartender's handshake. It was a way to welcome someone to, to the bar, say goodbye to a shift drink, to test their metal because it was bitter, it was strong, it was black, it was weird. You know, the other issue, too, was... There weren't a lot of Italian Amaros available in the States. Even now, like I've been out on this book tour and going to like Memphis or Chicago or Nashville, different cities, some of them don't have Averna and um, Varnelli and some of the ones that we can take for granted we can get here in New York. And that's or just some distribution other is just different. It's state-by-state distribution, yeah. It's but it's but but more and more – since I've even written the book, there's been like six to eight nude bottles that have come to the States. And I always say, like, it starts with the bartenders. Like, the bartenders embrace the new, the unusual, the weird. And bitter is something I can really get behind because it's aggressive, mm-hmm. uh, cleanses the palate at the end of a shift, like you said. Um, and it becomes their kind of secret code. And then the people like us, bar flies and cocktail geeks who hang out at the bar, they get past the shot. Right. They get into it. Where can I buy this? I want to learn more. Right. Um, but it really is the the bartenders have been our ambassadors to it. And the Negroni was a huge part because it's a drink that's bitter when you taste it. And you're like, oh, I don't like this. Or, wow, I really like this. Or I'll learn to like it. And from there, you have that template where you can do Negroni variations, the equal parts cocktail. That's why That's why I think it got yeah. big was it's just He's so easy to make. <laughs> third, a third, a third, a third of Campari. A third of ver- sweet vermouth, sweet vermouth and gin. So, so I can remember that. You can even remember when that. I've had a few. I tell a story in the book where I was at this bar called Barnacle in Seattle, and right. it's this aperitivo bar, and totally geeked out, wall full of Amaro vermouth. Um, geeking out with the bartender, trying this, trying that. I've never heard of this. What's this? What's that? Then a couple came in next to me, and they weren't as happy, and they ordered, like, uh, give me a gin and tonic. So I was kind of like, oh, man, you got all these bottles right. here you order but teach their own of course it was made with like local seattle gin beautiful bottle of tonic treat it treat them like a great great guest and then the guides looked at he was getting frustrated about the weight but also he's like he goes i don't know what the blank any of these bottles are right. and so when i wrote the i had just started writing the book and so that guy's voice is always in my head when i talk about it because like you and i and many others in our you know, bartending friends can geek out on it and try weird right. stuff and um and there's people who have never had like 
Chinar, Campari, Averna. Right. And so I so a big part of this category and this book is demystification, where like, what is it? Don't be afraid. Here's ways to try it. Right. Um because he's got these beautiful labels, but they have funny names. Yeah, they're and hard it, to even for me to decipher. So yeah. the holidays are right around the corner. Mm-hmm. So if somebody is listening to this podcast, which they are, hopefully. Uh <laughs> and and they want to get into Amaro or they want to buy a gift, what what's the one kind of gateway Amaro that most people around the U.S. can get that you would recommend? That's a great question. I I, I mean, not talking about Campari, Tin Campari off the table. Yeah. I like to say uh, Averna. Averna. Um, so that's A-V-E-R-N-A. Okay. Fairly, that was one of my, that was my first gateway Amaro where, and I, I call these like Goldilocks Amaros too, where yeah. they're not too bitter, not too sweet. They're just right. And that's why bottles like Averna and Lucano and Maletti are very popular in cocktails because they play well, play well with, others. with others, especially okay. brown spirits. And it's got this cola kind of taste. It's a lightly herbal, a little nuttiness. And that's that you can use that. I love that on its own. Just mm-hmm. um, that's a whole other category of like service. So, of so how, do you, well, well, how do you, so, I mean, if, if somebody is trying it for the first time or they're, they're, they're yeah. breaking out at the holiday table, are you just? Are you... I say put a put a bottle down with glasses, just neat. So like I and room temperature, room temperature. Yeah, if we went to ten different restaurants in the city today and ordered an Averna, we would get it ten different ways at the right. end of the meal. Right. It might come in a tulip stem glass. It might come in a rocks glass. It right. might come in a wine glass, a shot glass, a bistro style glass. They it might be chilled. It might not be chilled. So and. That happens in Italy too. So, like, even the Lucano, um, Lucano Amaro, Amaro Lucano, is another Southern Italian Amaro. And I, the family, the brothers, I interviewed, and their father, the brothers drink it one way, the father drinks it one way, and the grandfather drinks a different way. So, if the producers can't agree, like, what's accurate? Right. Like, who am I to say? So, um, but I think, I think. Um, yeah, for a meal at home, I would just put the bottle out with some glasses, make it casual. It can be a bridge to dessert before dessert, or it can be served with dessert okay. and a coffee or espresso. So I, uh, I was at a place in Boston, an Italian place, and they had a little menu where they were shaking the Amaro with ice. Oh, really? With And then I think putting a little soda like, water interesting. on top. And it was like cold and refreshing, and it wasn't... Sometimes Amaro's can be a little syrupy to me, mm-hmm. like a, a viscous, you know, yeah. a viscous. But to to that note, too, with yeah. Averna, uh, another, you think of it, like, taking it beyond the digestif, just put some tonic in it with a citrus, too. That Like, that was one of my summer drinks okay. this year, too. And then and then you can also put that into a cocktail, like the Black Manhattan, which is like a Manhattan variation where you use Amaro instead of vermouth, mm-hmm. and it's delicious. So, um, Amaro, your, your new book, there's tons, loads of recipes. Um, what's the one cocktail that you think people should be discovering making from the book? Oh, it's a good question. I, it's interesting to see like what organically comes out from, from it. And, and, um, I have found, like I just mentioned, the Black Manhattan is one that it's a really easy one to make. It, it came from bourbon and branch in San Francisco and it's, it's a Verna bourbon, um, bitters and it's just sort of like you're swapping in the the maro instead of the vermouth. Really easy to make and it's it's approachable. It doesn't look uh-huh. scary. Um, a, one of my personal ones in the books. So about ten percent of the recipes are mine and the other are from bartenders. Right. But there's a drink 
so in my first book, Bitters, there was a drink called the Autumn Sweater that was sort of the breakout drink. And in this one, there's a drink called the Smith Streeter, which mm. is named after a mutual friend of ours, right. uh, Krista Crosta. And um, it's kind of tall, cool, bitter, refreshing. It's rye, Amaro Lucano, cold brew coffee, orange bitters, and tonic. So it was kind of my taste. My it's, twist. A da- it's a dangerous cocktail, I have to say, because yeah. you got caffeine and booze exactly. in the same So thing. I saw Chris as like... Tall, bitter, cool kind of guy, and and um, so that's been what picked up a bunch by um, people talking about the book. They've yeah. they've signaled that one out as I think the mix of coffee and in amaro and booze is a all goes a fun, well. all, all good combo. But there's a and yeah, and it's interesting too because I've seen a lot of um, Instagrammers are making cocktails from the book and shooting them mm-hmm. and saying, I didn't have a Lucano, but I tried it with a Verna and it, and worked, it worked. But next time yeah. I'll do this, and so it's really it's interesting to see the what people have available and what people are drawn to. But I have seen a lot of Black Manhattans and the Smith Streeter has sort of been a a darling from the book. So for the holidays, go pick up Amaro by Brad Thomas Parsons, BTP, as he's known in in New York City. But before you go, uh, we have our lightning round questions that I have Uh to do. So I, I have to have an answer. Don't think too hard about it. Okay. This one might be hard. This is like choosing between children here. Amaro or bitters? Uh. Book or <laughs> book or drink? I don't know. Amaro. Amaro. Uh, rocks or neat? L rocks. Uh, bourbon or rye? Bourbon. Uh, the Vegas Strip or Bourbon Street in New Orleans? I got to go Bourbon Street. Yeah, that's, I think you're correct. Uh, Manhattan or Martini? Probably Manhattan. Cocktail the movie or The Thin Man? <laughs> Cocktail the movie. <laughs> uh, frozen daiquiri or frozen margarita? Daiquiri. Daiquiri. Frozen daiquiri, not daiquiri. Oh, I'm yeah. talking frozen daiquiri. Oh, I, get I can tell I got that one you wrong. You can't have the... Yeah, I can't, yeah. Okay, I thought we were... Yeah, uh, frozen margarita. Okay, all right. <laughs> I'll take it. Uh, dive bar or speakeasy? Dive bar. Okay. That's what we all say. Bacon, egg, and cheese sandwich or chilaquiles? Bacon, egg, and cheese. I could go for one of those right now. <laughs> <laughs> and then the last one, which we ask every guest, is butter or olive oil? Butter. Butter. Butter makes it better. Thanks, Brad. Thanks, Andrew. This podcast has been brought to you by Carrie Polis, Emma Wurtzman, and Lily Sherman, with editing by Mitra Kaboli. Our theme music is by Valerie and the Gradies. We have new episodes every Wednesday, and if you want to tell us about this or any other episode, email us at bonappetitfoodcast at gmail.com. Plus, we're also offering a deal with our podcast listeners. Go to bonappetit.com slash gift to see what we have. Thanks for listening.